black. What a word of power. It is multidimensional. It is something that just implies so much. And the black experience, it varies. And there are so many different outlooks on it. And though they may be different, they all deserve to be heard. And that was the purpose of creating this podcast and putting this together. I wanted to highlight the myriad experiences that Black people face and to share with you the journeys of hope, the journeys of self-discovery, the journey of realization and doubt and magic, really. In highlighting these four people that I was blessed enough to interview, so much just comes out, and I hope that every listener learns something different, is more open to Black people as a unit, Black people as an individual entity, and I just hope that you learn so much more, and I hope that your mind is open and that you are eager to join this conversation with other people to share your knowledge, to spread awareness, and just to create a better a better earth. You're listening to That Honesty Thing, the podcast, a Black History Month special, here to make you think, here to make you feel, and here to expand your thoughts and knowledge. In this episode, I'm bringing you closer to love, understanding, and humanity. If you like what you hear today, be sure to subscribe to be updated every time a new episode airs. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, head to Instagram at that honesty thing or send a personal email to info at thathonestything.com. I'm Amina Salu, and my Black experience starts off with being Black and Nigerian. And My journey to understanding what Black is, what Black meant, and where I fit with that really starts here. So first and foremost, I was born in the United States. I was born in Oakland, California, and I grew up in a very African household. My parents moved to the States at some point, I think, in the... 70s, if I am not making that up, (laughs) around that time, it was the largest group of Nigerians that had moved to the U.S. So many of the Nigerians that you may know are first-generation Americans like myself. What I thought Black to mean was American in the sense that your, your greatest ancestors that you knew were born in America also. And so growing up, being Nigerian, being African was always seen as something different than Black. And so just to reiterate, Black was synonymous with American. Same with if I met a Jamaican, if I met a Canadian, that is how they were referred to. Uh, Not this Black person, but a Jamaican. Not this Black person, but a Canadian who is Black. And so that was my experience. And with that, I had a very different upbringing. So I I wasn't necessarily included in like the black community. Like I remember being in school, like no one referred to me as black. I was always the Nigerian, the African one. Uh, Same with my cousin. So my interpretation again of black was 
clearly synonymous with being American and having American parents and American grandparents. And that idea for me um, wasn't shifted until I got to college. To be honest, I didn't understand the concept of race at all. It wasn't until I took an ethnic studies class and had a few conversations and saw how the definition for Black evolved. And just to bring it back to my upbringing, Being African, being Nigerian, that was not necessarily cool, (laughs) but Nigerians have a a great sense of pride and we're so proud of our culture. So it didn't affect me to where I felt like I was, uh, you know, lesser than or felt embarrassed about my heritage. I was proudly Nigerian um, just as I was then as I am now. It's just that at the time, people recognize that as something very, very different. And that was okay. And so I didn't understand the concept of race really until I got to college. And what happened was I realized this shift. It went from people sort of making fun of being African, being embarrassed to be African, being teased for being African, to African being seen as exotic or better than what I always associated to being proud of and having pride in my culture was then translated to being pretentious or having your nose stuck up or thinking that you're better than. And that switch for me really was overnight. I remember being at a college BSU meeting and people just expressing their anger from them saying like, oh, Africans don't want to be black. Africans think that, you know, they, some of them went into detail about hair and uh, physical features. And it was mind blowing for me because I didn't know that all of a sudden being African was cool. This thing about being foreign or not from here all of a sudden became cool. And that experience, it was. It was sad because I was like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to be against the people that look the most like me, but I've always known that there were just so many other cultures that existed and that there were differences between people who looked the same. And I never thought like one or the other was better, but I knew that they were different and that was okay with me. And that brought up a lot of conversations. I mean, with friends, significant others, it was a a very large awakening in my life. And I, again, had never called myself black. Nigerians are pretty much all the same color. Every African isn't necessarily the same color, uh, but all Nigerians are. So even for each other, we don't refer to each other as black. Everybody looks (laughs) black. Everyone has brown skin. We would refer to each other by different tribes. Uh, We may differentiate by the languages that we speak or even by religion, but never by skin color. And so, again, I did not understand the concept of race. I didn't know that Black could be Haitian, that Black could be South American. I just thought Black meant that you had brown skin, your ancestors were born in the state, your parents didn't have an accent. <laughs> I just thought that meant an American who was not white, essentially. As I educated myself on what race is, I learned that there are three races, man-made races, black, white, and Asian. And when people would ask me, what am I? 
it's still never registered because obviously of the three races, I'm not white and I'm not Asian. So you're not asking me if I'm black, you're asking me something else. And that something else is always Nigerian. And so that's always how I identified and not to exclude myself from the black group, not to, uh, again, sound like I was better than anyone, but that was always my identity. And after seeing how offended other people became to that response, I really dug deep and tried to figure out the why. And I think what happened is as different cultures became more accepted and maybe even more sought after, it felt like these different cultures who look Black, who are Black by race, were denouncing their Blackness. And once I realized that and I saw how separate and tumultuous that relationship was between different cultures of Black races and Black Americans, I was like, obviously I will always identify as Nigerian, but I want to be very clear about owning that I am Black. When it comes to race, I am Black 100%. And I don't have any doubts about that. I have no shame about that. I have no issue about that. I'm very proud to be a part of a race that has such a rich and resilient history. It is an honor to be a part of such a group, but it was a journey to be a part of that group. Initially, people like me were excluded. You know, we were not in with black people. And this is not to blame or anything like that. I think there are so many reasons, you know, people are robbed of their history. People are, you know, on both ends, ignorant to what it means to be black, what it means to be from Africa, South America, to be black and a Spanish speaker, to be black and your native language be French, to be black and be from Africa or all these different parts of Africa. And I think all of us had just been a bit ignorant to that. And so I decided I do not want to perpetuate this idea of putting Black people of different cultural groups against each other that I am not with. I love my people, whether your most immediate history is from the United States or from Africa or from wherever you are, Asia, the Middle East, I do not care. We are one and I'm so proud to be a part of that. And that journey, you know, that didn't happen for me until I was about 19, 20 years old that I didn't, you know, fully understand what black meant and how to identify. Um, so that's one part. The other part that I wanted to speak to was being black and Muslim. So that has been such an experience. I was, you know, just as many people have been born into Christianity, my greatest ancestors that I know of are Muslim. My family's Muslim. We are Muslim. And growing up, going to Islamic school. My mother pulled us out of about three or four of them. And she just felt like we were treated differently. And we were. We were treated very different, differently because of our skin color. And a lot of Muslims have a Middle Eastern background. And when we were integrated in those groups, they definitely treated us like the other. There was always a question about, oh, when did you convert <laughs> to Islam? Or being associated to, and no disrespect to, uh, the, the nation of Islam. 
I didn't learn about that until I almost graduated college. And so these different ideas of what it means to be Muslim and to look like me um, was very interesting. And a lot of times we were the outcasts. And I know Muslims are not supposed to do that to one another, but we do. We do. Even in a mosque, you know, you go and it's diverse, but they're speaking in their native tongue. Half the people at the mosque can't understand what you're saying because you're speaking in your cultural language, not even Arabic, but possibly Farsi or things of that nature. And so being Black and Muslim and saying that has been um, exclusionary, even in the dating world. Uh, being Black and Muslim and having Black friends, not not most people are, are Muslim. A lot of Africans are, but Black Americans, there's not a whole ton in my upbringing that identified as Muslim. And to be Black and Muslim, there's almost like this little pressure on you because you don't want to do the wrong thing because there's already these doubts like, are you a real Muslim or not? (laughs) People actually ask me, how Muslim are you? Like, what a question to ask someone. How Christian are you? (laughs) You know, and um, there are just so many stigmas associated to being Muslim, not just Muslim, but being Black and Muslim. I don't wear hijab and a lot of my faith is questioned, and I think largely in part because of my skin color. So that had been an adjustment. That had been something quite interesting to navigate. But in all of it, I am so proud to be African. I'm so proud to be Nigerian, and I'm so proud to be Black and to have learned what Black means. And I am just so privileged You know, you don't hear that a lot about Black, but I'm so privileged to be a part of such a group. And I'm honored to, in that unity, have my own distinct identity and to be able to talk about that and create connections based off of that as well. Hello, everyone. My name is Corey Elliott. Um, I'm from Richmond, California. I am a sixth grade English teacher right now in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, and I am a founder of The Black Neighborhood. Thank you. And my first question for you is um, pretty much what is the truth about being black and from an inner city? You said that you're now working, you know, as a sixth grade English teacher. Um, And I know just from previous encounters that you are currently getting your master's um, and pursuing a PhD afterwards. So coming from Richmond, California, now you're in New York, you're doing all these things. How has that transition been? And what are the strengths and struggles of that? Um, I think that college was my transportation. So being able to leave the Bay Area, leave Richmond and go to Morehouse College originally and transfer to Howard University in DC, I, I was able to get some exposure and some experience in regards to stepping outside of Richmond. Um, I also went to a private high school in San Francisco. So waking up every morning, going to the high school in San Francisco, just that exposure and that experience really prepared me to live in New York. Um, The challenges, some of the challenges that I face now are hearing about certain situations that going back home, whether someone getting killed, whether it's a family member that needs help and me always being away. You know, another challenge on the positive side is if someone has a baby or certain experiences that friends and families are having back in the Bay that I'm missing out on. Um, As well as being out here, coming from Richmond, you have this mentality of always checking your 
corners, always looking around you, always feeling like anything could happen. Um, I think that's better prepared me for a place like New York, but it also, you know, sometimes I'm not always mentally positive and I can easily see the negative or, you know, being a happy environment and yet being prepared for the worst, which can weigh you down. Um, on the positive side, coming from Richmond, I can live and survive anywhere, you know, and I'm almost accustomed to bad things happening throughout the year, young folks getting killed, you know, certain situations that I shouldn't be used to, I'm almost numb to, which not to say it's positive at all, but it allows me to keep pushing and to keep going and to kind of just accept that we go whenever we go. In terms of, you know, again, we know you're from Richmond, so thank you for that. Amen. Say um, that again, Richmond, <laughs> California. Um, what about going back home? What about people who have not had the opportunity to go to a private school or to make some of the educational choices and take the career paths that you've been you know, able to, how does that work? Like if you go back home, when you go back home, how do you immerse yourself back in the community? Okay. Yeah. Definitely. I would first say that there's a lot of love. We do not know how many people are watching us. I was surprised to bump into, you know, young men now who were kids years ago, you know, they may be 18, 19, even like 23. And I'm like, yo, Corey, I watch you. I follow you. You know, I have a younger cousin. He's 22 now. He has a picture of me in his room. I haven't seen him in like eight years, you know, since I most recently went home. And I was taken aback by all the love and all the support. Um, I've also, by me moving here, it's it's also giving certain people a destination. So I have family members who would have never came to New York or never really left the city that have traveled here because I'm here. So now they know someone in New York City. Um, challenges, sometimes going home, I'm just not around. So there's people who may say like, who are you? No, you can't be from here. We haven't seen you. It's like, you may not know me, but your mom knows my mom, or I know your older cousin, or I went to school with such and such. So there is a bit about being out the loop that now I'm accustomed to. I almost like, I like going in areas and not really being recognized. I like being that person that's around a group of guys that you may recognize that's from whatever area, and I'm the oddball out. Um, I kind of enjoy that now. But for a minute, it was tough to go home and immerse myself in certain environments, whether we're going to a function, whether we're going to some sort of event. And it's like, Corey, what are you doing here? It's like, yo, this is my cousin that's putting this on. You know, this this is my grandmama house that everyone's in. Um, yeah, so it's it's interesting. What is your experience being seen as a black man in America at this point in time? Definitely. The first thing I think about when you say that is black women. It's the very first thing I think about. I love being the man that I am because of you all. It's the bottom line. Whether the world hates me or not, the love that I get has always been strong and always been stable with black women. Whether it's my mother, grandma, friends, relationships, just someone on the street that just sees me and shows me love. It could be a smile. It could be, you know, I'm a teacher, so I wear a shirt and tie pretty much every day. And just seeing the head nods as you walk by from everyone, really. So I would first say the Black community is the first entrance into this world. And that's all love. That's all love. I think that we get to a point where you get accustomed to the negativity. 
You know, you get used to hearing nothing but negative statistics on TV all day long. You get used to hearing everyone trying to fix the black man in this issue to the point to where, you know, I start to wonder my entire life. All I've heard is the negativities and everyone talking about how they're trying to fix it. But if everyone is just, you know, spreading negative statistics, whether they're false or accurate, what are we really doing as a whole? And I'm at a point now where it, it comes down to percentage. I love to read the news. News articles, right? I follow um, an app called Smart News. And that's where I, I, I just read news pretty much every day. And usually, if there's a black person, it's negative. Now, if you, you know, now they can argue that, all right, well, this one instant was negative. It happened to be an African-American. And my question is, all right, but what percentage of your news is positive? Right, you go to these talk shows. What percentage of what you're sharing about my culture is positive? And if overwhelmingly, you know, if most of it is negative, then I just put you as a hater. And whether you know it or not, you are spreading more hate than you are love. Um, yeah, I, I think about my mom. I love being black. I love my skin. I love walking around areas. White people be afraid. People look at me and cannot tell if I'm a thug or if I'm this, right? They look at me and they have negative assumptions. But at the end of the day, I don't know one black person that wouldn't want to be their skin color. Not one. You know, so it comes with it. I think that a part of being great is that there's going to be a large amount of people that hate you. And I think that there's a deep reason why we're so hated, you know? And if we as a people can learn to see the power that we have and to see the force that we have and to see how mentally decapitated we become when we allow others to comment and to kind of penetrate this beautiful, love, strong foundation barrier that we have, then we have a problem. And all I have to say to anybody young that you know hears this is like, look to the black women around you. That's it. And you'll be all right. Listen to them, right? You know, coming from where I come from, I love to hear songs from the young folks in every hood, Richmond, Oakland, San Francisco, Sacramento, wherever, Bay Area. Um, but I've learned that there's some times where I need like a mental baptism of sorts, you know, when, as I said, I'm just in a negative space. And I just make sure to listen to black women, whether it's Jill Scott, Eric Badu, it could be someone new could be someone old, like it doesn't matter. But when you immerse yourself in this music and this sound made by black people, especially black women, and it's positive and it's uplifting, it gives you a fresh new look on life. So I am, I'm fantastic. I love it. <laughs> I love it all. The hate too, like you get used to it. You get used, used to it. So I don't focus on that really at all. What is your hope? for the black community. And I'm talking like globally. Okay. I'll start nationwide. I think my hope for the black community is for us to, that's a good question. I think that we, we share too much with the world. We allow others to feel like what they say about us matters. We allow others to feel like you have a place in this conversation. And if you look at other cultures that have came to America, they're not 
always the topic of conversation when you turn on the TV. Whatever ugliness that may be around them, we don't really know about. We don't really know what struggles they're going through. And I think a part of it is that we have been so silenced for so long that we need to express it. And it's good and it's important. However, we need to be careful what we share with people. Because obviously we see so many times where people adapt, take, and kind of separate. Um, so my biggest thing with us is just being unified. You know, Kanye West, today is May 1st. Kanye West just came out with a whole bunch of stuff. Feel however you feel, but publicly, I love all my people. That's the bottom line. Now, when, when we are talking, then we can talk however we want to talk. But publicly, we have to be able to love each other. And we have to be very careful, again, with opening these doors of private conversations and allowing the world to knock down people that we have put on a pedestal for a reason. Um, so I think nationwide, that's something that I really want us to do. It's hard because, like, how do you share information and not share it too much? You know, and I'm not quite sure. I just I just feel like we we open ourselves up too much. Um, and hand in hand with that is just being unified and just showing love. You know, I love my folks. I really, really do. Doesn't mean I don't love everyone because I, I really have a love for everyone. I have nothing negative to say about any culture, generally speaking. Um, but if we just focus on us, we do what we got to do. We support each other and we don't have to always share it with the world. Um, that is something that I really want more of in our community. I think globally, Globally, it's just connecting. I didn't really know that there were Haitians that spoke Spanish, you know, until I moved to New York. I had never seen someone. I'm a dark-skinned guy, fair, darker. I don't know. But I've never, I, I had never seen a dark-skinned, black-skinned person whose first language was Spanish until I moved here. I didn't even know that. I didn't know that that existed, right? Now we're having this whole Afro-Latino push but four or five years ago, no one even knew that that was a possibility coming from the West Coast. So I think that we have to connect more with our people globally in every country. Because if you look at it, if you look up Brazil or India, the first faces that you see are fairer skinned. It's not a problem to see fairer skin. It's a problem that there's a lack of black skinned people. And most of these countries or areas have a lot of black skin, darker skin people. And if we can just connect, I think that'll help us in knowing that we're not alone and knowing that there's more out there for us and knowing that there are a bunch of countries that we can visit where we will be loved, where everyone around you will look like you. And we need more of that. I'm looking at you weird because I'm like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you a thousand percent. And I think the when you're talking about just nationally and giving people access to us, I think you hit a lot of markers there. One in us not knowing our value, mm. I think, um, mm -hmm. which, you know, is for a number of reasons and not understanding the importance of not being that vulnerable or n let me not say not being vulnerable, but being mindful of who we are vulnerable with. Hmm. And I think that's like an individual thing, but like culturally and nationally too, I think you're absolutely right. 
you know, we do allow so much access and historically, you know, the rest of the world hasn't been good to us when we've mm-hmm. done that. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it is a habit that we, we should change and mm-hmm. we should protect what everyone is seeking after what they are killing us for really. Yep. So I feel that on, on all the levels. Yeah, for <laughs> um, my last question is just, what is black magic? Black magic is an interesting concept. On one hand, on one hand, I think about black magic and I think about this beauty and this um, gratification in who we are and, and just being really proud of who we are. You know, and like you see certain folks, you see just the joy we have and it feels magical. It is just something beyond this world. On the other hand, a part of me feels like there's no such thing as black magic because we're very real. This isn't some fantasy. This isn't something that that you aren't born with. You know, this isn't something that you can't obtain. This is very, very real. We are not these creatures from somewhere else that every that is like, oh, this is just some magicalness that they have. At the same time, that sounds awesome. And there is something about us that's beyond where we are now. You know, so I'm a bit torn. From my understanding, black magic came from black people, which I completely support 110%. You know, even seeing like the uh, joy, you know, the like girl joy, the boy joy, all of that is great. And I like, like I said, I love everything that's us. I love this promotion of of us. And it is magical in, in a sense. I just don't want us to start to see ourselves as not human or for others to start to see us as not human and their magic let's let's get some of their magic we don't care about them we just want their hair we just want their sags we just want to dance the way that they dance we just want to talk the way that they talk because all that's magical and something that i've seen historically with us is we present this art and then someone picks it up or then two, three months down the line, it's old and we move on. But that oldness then is adapted by another culture. And then we get upset that they've adapted it. And when to us, it's now old news. You know, our culture throughout the world, throughout America, is so different in every region. And we move so quickly that today this dance is cool, tomorrow it's lame. But when it's lame to us, those folks that just got hip to it are now making it popular and now they're getting paid to do what these children made two months ago that now we don't even consider as cool. So we really need to hold on to the art that we have. We need to hold on to this talent and do what we can. There's millions of dances. There's millions of sayings that people are getting wealthy off of that are not the creators or the originators. Um, And some of that comes down to ownership and us really having the experience or having someone around us to say, hey kid, that dance move that you're making is awesome. Don't just abandon it right now because the next kids are going to be on the Ellen show for doing this exact same dance move that you just made. Mm -hmm. And now it's on TV. So someone is getting paid from that and it's not you, you know, and we definitely need to um, know our value and expect our value and be comfortable with what we make, even when we think it's old. The Black Neighborhood. You can check us out at theblackneighborhood.org. We are on Instagram at theblackneighborhood. Um, 
And that's our primary form of contact. You can also email us at theblackneighborhood at gmail.com. Uh, my personal email, Corey, C-O-R-Y underscore E. That's not my email. That's my Instagram. Um, that's my primary source of contact. But yeah, check us out. Check out the site. Email us. Hit us on Instagram. We are building this ourselves, right? We are now an official non-profit before we were an LLC, but now we have the official 5013C. So any ideas, any suggestions, any support, you know, going to HBCUs, going to two of them, I have a lot of people contacting me from out of the state. So even if you're out of the state, you want to help out, you want to support ideas. Like I said, we are building. We are very, very open to suggestions. Um, and we're just trying to spread love. That's the, the, the main thing is spread love, providing these kids with exposure, providing our communities with, I don't want to say beacons of hope or anything like that, but just with assistance and with support and knowing that there are a group of people. It's not just us five, right? Sure, we've started this, but there are a lot of people who have come to events who have volunteered, and it's all about us having ownership over our community, showing love, doing events, having a lot of free things, bringing people out, and just providing experience, exposure, love, connection, teaching, learning, um, and connecting with everyone, with everyone. And it starts with us. My name is Justin Jones. Um, I'm from Georgia, Columbus, Georgia, to be exact. Um, I'm currently a college counselor for a charter high school in New York, uh, basically um, helping kids uh, find their way um, into college and, you know, possible career paths and future options and choices. So, yeah. What is your experience being black and of a lighter skin tone? Ah, well, this is interesting. Um, you know, I think for me, I won, and I guess it may be due to the fact that I have a lighter skin tone, haven't always, you know, had to recognize that I was of a lighter race, you know, and I think that came mainly from, you know, just the simple fact that I wasn't always, you know, being perceived in some type of negative light because of my race, you know, and people, you know, look at me and, you know, I have lighter eyes, I have lighter hair, you know, a lot of people think I'm, I'm mixed or, or they're like, they ask me where I'm from or so. A lot of people, I think, you know, on the onset, depending in the context that you meet me, you, you might not even think that I'm black some ways, you know, and so... It's really interesting. I think sometimes, you know, because I'm lighter skinned, you know, the whole masculinity part comes in. It's like, oh, I'm weaker. And oh, you know, uh, also I'm smaller kind of guy. And so I get these uh, stereotypes and these, you know, projections of being this, uh, you know, more feminine and not necessarily masculine in a lot of ways. And so I think that's kind of how I've perceived, how I've seen people's perception of me from my, I guess, light skinnedness. But I never really took a lot of notice of it. I think other people made it a larger part of my identity than I gave credence to. Um, you know, just people always commenting on, you know, my skin tone or my hair color or my eye color, you know, and I just was like, okay. And it, it kind of got to the point where it's just like, wow, is that all there is to me? Is that all you really do see of me? And so, yeah, it's kind of like my experience, I guess. How is your experience being Black and someone who is educated and pursuing a higher education? Um, I like to make jokes and I like to talk about the aspiring Black middle class and, um, you know, what comes with getting educated and, um, 
you know, I look back on it and think about my family, uh, where my family's from and the legacy. You know, I'm African American, um, and so or black American, however you want to dice it. And so I come from a family that is, you know, I guess in a general word, dysfunctional, a functioning dysfunctional family, you know. Uh, and I think that going to school is something that my parents instilled in me, um, but it wasn't necessarily something I aspired to again. Um, you know, my father just kind of had a rule. He's just like, look, you're going to go to school. You're going to stay out of trouble. You're going to make good grades. You're going to be responsible. And that's really all that I ask of you, you know, stay out of trouble and things like that. And so that's what I did. And, you know, when I turned 18, you know, college wasn't something that was just kind of pushed at me. It was, you can go if you want. I'm not paying for it, you know? <laughs> and so luckily I did get a scholarship to go to college. Um, but I was heavily considered in the military. I'm from a military family. Um, my, my father, and my, I got uncles, I got cousins. And so college wasn't really an option. So when I went through college and I, as I gotten through it, you know, I'm going back now for graduate school, I can definitely see the difference in perspective or shift in perspective for myself and how I view the world and how I view things simply just by the experiences that I had in college. You know, I wasn't the best student. I was very involved on campus. But I think for me, the transformative piece um, in college uh, was just some of the people that I met and the dynamic. And I think I also went somewhere I, I would feel is very special. So I'm a graduate of Morehouse, you know, it's an all male uh, institution. And so all black male institution. And, and I was able to see different levels of, of black masculinity, black men, you know, in, in, in conjunction with each other that I don't think you will see anywhere in the world, especially in an institutionalized space. And I think that's something that has to always be you know, said about Morehouse, but I take education as just something that has benefited me, but I also understand how it's alienated me in a lot of ways. You know, once you start learning things, once you start, you know, understanding the world in a different capacity than those who haven't had the experiences to view the world in the way that you can, you start to wonder, can you ever go back to what you used to see? And can you relate to those who only see it at that level? And, and that's something that I'm also fearful of the more as I keep learning. But I think I've now gone so far in the path that it's just like, well, you have to kind of take it. You just got to go with it. And so I always try and maintain and, and retain where I've come from and what experiences I had before I started, you know, becoming an aspiring black middle class citizen, uh, you know, because I know very well the way the economy works in this country. And, and it's really you know, just a one bad day away from, you know, being bounced right back into poverty. And so I always try and remain humble and, and understand that even with my education, even with my supposed dissonance from, you know, where I've come uh, intellectually and, you know, socially and how I think about the world, I could easily bounce right back into that. And so that helps me re retain like a stronger tether to my, my roots, if you will. And so I don't allow education to really blind me to a lot of things, but it can, it can, it can disassociate you. It can definitely take you from where you used to be. And I think that's the benefit of it, right? You start to view the world from <laughs> another place, but it can also be kind of scary and it's kind of, you know, iffy, you know, for me as a black man, you know, as they say, you know, an educated black man, you know, dangerous. Uh, and I don't know how much credence that gets, but for me, I just know that I could have been a lot of other places. I could be doing a lot of other different things that don't necessarily require education. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm here.
what is your hope for the black community uh, in general, all across the globe, for black people as a whole? What is your hope? Oh, that's such a big question. I know. And <laughs> I don't think I'm qualified to answer it, but I guess for me, and maybe I'm a little controversial here, but I, I you know, I, I, I bounce sometimes between this idea of global pan-Africanism and, and, and blackness and, you know, our unity, if you will. And I sometimes wonder how much of the community in it, in it, how much of the community is left, you know, has community become something that's rhetorical in a lot of ways, something that we say and that we use to keep a semblance of some type of hope, you know, and I think that's something where I really struggle. What is, is there hope left for a black community, for the black community, especially if you want to talk globally? Um, we've been through a lot. Uh, history has not been kind to black people. And I think that we've fought in many myriad of ways and, and we fought each other in myriad of ways and and all through it all we keep kind of you know trying to reach this this point of 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 i guess rest if you will where we can say we've we've done it and i don't think that's come and i don't know if it will come and i don't know if you know we can i don't know i i i i wonder I and mean, i just want i want everyone you know sorry i want everyone to just uh <laughs> Just to just to be able to live, you know, live comfortably, have have the have the bare necessities, you know, to not have to worry and stress more than one naturally should. You know, life isn't easy, life isn't isn't a cakewalk, but I think that we socially can create a world that allows all people, you know, to to to, to do well in their day to day. But I think that the current world that we have, there's just a system that changes at every turn to capitulate against, you know, black people. And and it, it's it's hard for me to kind of think about the largeness of, of blackness and what will happen to black people and what our future looks like. But I can only, I guess, hope personally that it, it's, it's brighter than what it is today. Historically speaking, um, or, or giving, given the the history of Black people in America, I feel like no one should be doing okay. You know, like <laughs> no one should be doing okay. So I think that is a um, unique and powerful, innate uh, strength of Black people. And I'm asking you, what is Black magic? Even though I kind of just tainted your answer. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you kind of you kind of summed it up there for me. Uh, black magic, you know, I've heard many names for what we can consider black magic to be. You know, the finesse, you know, the come up, you know. Uh, <laughs> I think it's just, I think to your point, that resilience, that that continuous look toward a future and what that future can look like collectively. And I think that's something that, you know, race... You know, as we all know, race isn't a real thing. It's it's not a it's not factual, but it has a you know has a hold over our social world, and so we have to account for. It. And I think the thing that it's done is that it's kept Black people in general focused on a collective future, and I think that's something that we use every single day to to push us beyond ourselves in a world that is anti-black because it has to be something so grand so large so so beautiful 
that you can continue to hope for it and work toward it and fight toward it, even when the you know a boot is on your neck and and and, and guns are in your face and, and and every insurmountable odd is 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 staring you down. And I think that that collective vision that you know may sound different when you speak to people individually, but that collective vision of Black people doing better, I think that's the well and the source. For, for black people to continue to do well and those who can tap into that and who can tap into this, you know, that that beautiful idea. I think that's the source of the magic. I think that's what is allowing us to continue to strive, you know, and thrive and and and, and continue on toward a future that hopefully is brighter than today. What do you love most about being a black man? Oh, what do I love most about being a black man? Wow. Honestly, I haven't even thought about that question. I don't think I've ever thought about that question. What do I love about being a black man? Um, you know, this might sound a little messed up, but sometimes, you know, the fetish is cool in a little ways. You know, like, oh, the black man, I want a black man, nah, 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 wherever that comes up. It kind of makes you feel good to be wanted, to be desired in a certain way, you know, but not too much. Don't, don't, don't push it, you know. Uh, but um, I don't know. I really don't know what I love about being a black man. I guess I don't think about that question. And it gets back to the idea about, you know, being a light-skinned black man. It's like, mm -hmm. I, I don't think about my race that much. I don't, I mean, I think about myself as a black man in the context of understanding black men and that I fall into that category. But I just do not, in my mind, the way I conceptualize the world, it's like I count for race, but I don't, I don't, uh, well, I'd rather say I acknowledge race, but I don't let it, um, affect my processes if mm -hmm. that if that makes sense you know and i explain this to some people and they're just like what do you mean he's like you know it's just like for me it's like i understand it i'm a black man people see me as a black man but i know for me i am just just an amalgamation of so many different things and that to just say black man to you know i, I hate when people give me any really type of title mm -hmm. because we, you know his language knows it's defined it's defining and i'm someone who doesn't necessarily always like to be defined because of you know, we're always changing. We're always moving back and forth. And so, you know, I think I just simply love the fact that I can be a part of an identity that has, you know, produced great men in the world who have gone on to change things and have gone on to, you know, um, leave a mark and legacy and say that, you know, I come from a lineage of great black men. Um, and I think I can find love and respect and appreciation for, you know, falling under that same identity and that mantle and trying to follow in the steps of those men, you know, those black men, you know, if I'm going to be a black man, the black men, those are the black men that I should aspire toward or I should look up to or I should, you know, you know, take into myself. And so I think, you know, loving myself as a black man, maybe a work in progress, you know, yeah. but I take it day by day and, you know, I, I just try and love myself first as who I am before I'm love myself as anything else. Hi, my name is Jeanette Amesquita. I am a sixth grade history teacher in Brooklyn. What is your experience being Dominican and also identifying as Black? Ooh, I love that question. Um, so in college at Fordham, I studied African-American history, Caribbean history, African history, and that was like my major. And so really when I started learning more about my own history and Dominican history and what that entails, Latin American history, what about South America? Like when I started learning all about the world in general is when I started shifting how I self-identify. 
And I started realizing like, wait a second, there are people within my lineage who probably were slaves or were brought over here um, across the Atlantic and on that journey. And like, I, that's a part of who I am, no matter what country I'm in, I'm, it's still going to be a part of me. And um, so for most of my life, I've always just identified as Dominican, but I didn't really start identifying as Afro-Dominican or Black Dominican until like almost the end of college. Um, and that was like my, I guess my learning curve as learning about my own identity and what that means, but more so ma mainly because I was reading all of this content about Black history. And so once I learned my history, it's like, well, now I'm learning myself. So it's kind of like, I kind of like joined those two together. So now I identify as Black Dominican. And at first it was really jarring for some of my friends to hear, um, for some of my family members to hear, because growing up, I was just instilled with like this Dominican pride. You're Dominican. Like when someone asks you who you are, you're Dominican. And that's what you must say at all times. And you speak Spanish and you know, this is who you are. And so when my when I started talking to my mother specifically about that, she was like, "What?" And then when I started when I told her that I'm going natural, she was like, "What?" So it was kind of like my identity was shifting in, in many different ways. But at first, a lot of my friends were like, "You ain't black. You're not black. What you talking about?" And I'm like, "Yeah, if you're talking about black as in African American, but I'm using the word black to refer to people of the African diaspora. So I'm black." And so like having to explain that all the time, it just, it was a lot at first. Um, but now I feel like these conversations are more commonplace, um, whether it's in the classroom or whether I'm talking to middle schoolers about, about it, right? It's, it seems like it's, people are more open and I'm starting to also, I feel like Afro Latinos and Latinas are like getting more visibility now in some sort of way. So I feel like now I can identify with like a group or now I feel like, okay, there's other people out there that feel the same way I do. And we can all identify as, as such. Uh, but it's interesting to even think about how is it that how I identify or who I am or what I'm learning about myself affects other people or like, why does the title even matter? Uh, for me, I know, cause it was like, my history and like be feeling really passionate about like learning it, the history and then teaching it. So it's like, that's where I'm, that's where it comes from for me. But for when it comes to everyone else, I would get really ignorant questions. Like you're not black. Like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. Like really? And, and these, this is from like fellow Dominicans. Um, and then that leads into the next part, which is like Dominicans have this history of like, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, it's very a tumultuous history with race in general. Um, and so it plays into a lot of aspects of Dominican culture, um, like how people wear their hair, um, skin, skin lightening, um, a lot of, a lot of things. I couldn't talk forever about those, but the history of race in DR is not a very pretty one. And many people don't talk about it. And many Dominicans don't either don't talk about it, but know it happened or like don't really know much about it, but it's referred to in family stories, but you don't really know. Like if you don't really sit down and read about what actually went down, then 
you could probably live, I could probably live my entire life as just a Dominican, like, because I never questioned it. So, but I think if, if people were more open about these conversations or like about learning that history, then maybe those ignorant conversations wouldn't occur or like those microaggressions wouldn't be so salient. Well, at that, at that point, um, back when I was in college, but yeah. For Dominicans, where do you think, do you think there is a shame around blackness? And if so, to what part of the Dominican history is that, you know, stemming from? Oh, great question. I think that there's an absolute shame around blackness for Dominicans. Um, Perhaps not so much now, like in 2018, but in 2010, like I definitely felt that. Um, But I guess when we're, I guess, okay, where did it, where would it have started? So uh, DR has a very tough history with Haiti, which is right next door um, across the border. And as it turns out, uh, a lot of Dominican history has been whitewashed. So for example, February 27th is Dominican Independence Day. But it's independence from Haiti. It's not independence from Spain. And what a lot of Dominicans, or at least my parents never taught me this, like I didn't know that Haiti helped DR become independent from Spain. And it just so happened that they controlled, like I guess it was, I'm not sure, I might be wrong on this, but I'm I'm not sure if it was like a military uh, occupation of DR or if it was like they had a president, but the Haitians were running it. I'm not sure. But I just know that, Dominicans celebrate independence from Haiti and not Spain. And to me, like that totally, it was so, I was so disillusioned with like my heritage to, to the extent where I'm like, "Mm," like, what, what am I really celebrating about being Dominican besides the parts of the culture that like I interact with every day, the parts of the culture that are a part of my identity. Like I really just felt disheartened. Like it just feels like there's a lot of stuff that was erased and a lot of stuff that maybe wasn't even or isn't even being taught in schools. And everything is all about the white uh, colonizers. So like all the statues you see in DR are of Christopher Columbus. Why? Like, I think we know enough about him now. Like, come on, DR. But yet this is still our point of pride. Like, this is what we name our towns after. Like, that doesn't make sense. And there is an absolute shame. And I think it comes from that relationship with Haiti and then <clears throat> coupled with some, um, the presidency of uh, Trujillo, who was like the, um, he was a dictator for over 30 years in DR, and he massacred thousands of Haitians at the border. Like all of this stuff is being ingrained into like the Dominican mind at this time. And so I feel like even down to like my grandparents, like they were raised under this certain type of society. And this dictator had absolute control over everything in DR. And that was in the 1930s. Got a fact check on the years. Yeah. I'm pretty sure the massacre was 1939. So from way before 1939, all of these sentiments are being taught. We hate the Haitians. We, we, we celebrate independence from them. You know, they're black. We're not. We speak Spanish. They speak French. Like it's this like division. And so that's where I think it comes from. And I really wish that, um, 
it was different because we do share an island and we do share certain aspects of our culture and history. Um, but more importantly, it's like, wow, they really did help us become independent from the white colonizer. Why don't they get more credit? And then on top of that, like thinking of how Haiti is portrayed in the media or how it was portrayed in the media back then and how America tried to demonize this country. Like, of course, Dominicans are going to hate them or think differently of them uh, or that there's going to be that shame that you that you mentioned. Man. All right. And what is your hope for the black community as a whole? Oh, my. That's a loaded question. I don't even know if I'm like worthy of like saying that, but oh, what a wonderful thing. Uh, okay, I think my hope would be that people can feel uh, included whenever they have to become a part of some sort of like group or workplace or um, friend group or like, you know, Twitter. Twitter timeline, like, I just, I just think it's, we learn so much from one another when we can tell our stories and like share our experiences and be like, well, I didn't always know that I was black. And like actually being able to talk about that openly um, is important. And I think if we have spaces for that uh, or people are like, we start seeing that more in the media, that could be a really, really great thing. Um, I also just, overall, I would, I just hope that Despite all differences or despite, you know, how someone might feel about XYZ group or despite their prejudices towards someone or their judgments or stereotypes, um, that people can really take the time to, like, hear these stories and, like, you know, and I hope that that begins somewhere in the classroom. I hope that somehow our students um, can share their stories or feel like their identity is being represented uh, within the classroom because if it if they can start early and start empowering themselves and start to feel sure of themselves and who they are by you know race or by gender or sexual orientation whatever you name it it's it has to start when they're young and really I think educating the next generation it comes after us and like these types of conversations are okay and we actually encourage them and you can actually learn a lot from one another from just having a discussion about your life or all of that. Or like you can find out a lot about your, yourself by doing a research paper on something that you're interested in. Like all of these things I feel like are taught when we're young. And if we're not taught to feel um, worthy, if we're not taught to feel empowered, if we're not taught to like advocate for ourselves, then who's going to do it? No one else. And so if our children are surrounded by adults who are capable of this ability or who can at least teach them the way, then like, I think that that could be a great thing. And that's not just um, in the black community, but like everywhere. And I guess that speaks to the education world in general too. Yeah. What is black magic? Ooh, (laughs) black magic is everything. Everything you want it to be. All right. My name is Lamar. Last name, too? No, you can. Uh, all right. Sure. My name is Lamar Shambly. Uh, I am a high school Spanish teacher, uh, born in Brooklyn, New York, but grew up in Norfolk, Virginia. 
What has been your experience as a gay black male? What has been my experience? Um, all right. So definitely started from the very beginning. I didn't come out until I was 22. So this was eight years ago. Uh, yeah, actually, as of July, it'll be eight years. Um, and I've always known that I was attracted to men, but I didn't know that I was emotionally attracted to men. Like, of course, if I see a handsome guy, oh, that's a good looking guy. But I never knew that I would have an emotional connection with a guy until my senior year of college. So that was around the time, 21, 22, um, when I came out to my parents. And so I was really, I was afraid of coming out to them more so just because I was the golden boy of the family. I was the one that went to a good high school, went to a fantastic college, like was really smart, just like I did everything by the book. Um, and so I didn't want to disappoint my parents. Um, my mom only has two kids. She has me and my sister, my older sister. Uh, however, my dad has eight kids. My dad is a little bit of a Don Juan. He had, you know, like four baby moms and I was the youngest one, the golden boy of the family. And so I didn't want to disappoint him. Um, but I first came out to my mom, um, and how honest can I be? Extremely honest. Extremely honest. Um, but first, in terms of coming out to my mom, when I came out to her, um, I was also, this was a period in my life where I was just sad. I was like a really sad boy every day and just kind of depressed. Um, I came out to my mom. Of course, I was crying and sad and my mom grew up in Brooklyn in the 70s, 80s. So like she's she's seen a lot in terms of the gay community in New York. She's always told me she would go to West Village and like hang out and just to see the freaks and the different people, you know, there. But um, when I came out to her, I was a little bit sad. Um, and my mom didn't really know what to say because, you know, I don't know if she was surprised, but... My cousin also got married that day. So, you know, she let me know that she loves me and that I'm still her son. But we eventually, you know, I pulled it together. We go to the wedding. She parks the car. And before we even get out to go to the wedding, my mom rolls up a joint in the car. And we hotbox in the car because she saw that I was sad. And she was like, no, we're, we're going to be just fine. And so <laughs> she smoked me out before I went to the wedding. And then at the wedding, we just danced. And so that just made me feel so much better to see my mom see me as a person. Uh, yes, her son, um, but not just my sexuality. You know, this is me letting her know a little bit more about myself that I was incredibly afraid of. Um, and so my mom was easy, piece of cake. Uh, my dad is a little bit harder for me, especially like I told you, you know, he was like a very macho guy, um, like ran numbers in downtown Brooklyn. So he's like a hood dude. Um, um, when I told him, he, he had a hard time just understanding. Um, my dad had a younger sibling. My dad is the oldest of maybe six. Um, my dad had a younger sibling who was born intersex, um, which I think a lot of people don't know. 1% of the population is born intersex. That's as much as redheads. Right. 
Like this is fairly common to be born with with both sexes and either parents have to choose what hormones their child has to take and you know unfortunately some people are assigned a specific gender but then later on in life inside they feel more of another gender so it's a complicated issue but anyway uh, my dad had a younger sibling who was born intersex uh, and was showing more female characteristics as they were younger um, they I don't know if they were sent away to grow up somewhere else but um, when they came back as a teenager, were now exhibiting more male characteristics, um, but was very soft, very effeminate. Um, and this may have been in the 70s or 80s, which at that time was hard. Um, my dad was not kind to his younger sibling because, again, my dad was like the number runner on the block, the like, well-known you know, hood guy. And my dad was not the nicest. Um, Didi was their name. Didi eventually uh, passed away. I'm not entirely sure. I've been trying to look up birth certificates and death certificates to figure out something. Um, but I didn't get concrete details. Anyway, when I came out to my dad, my dad thought that this was a genetic kind of thing. You know, oh, of course, you know, Dee Dee was born intersex, and so there has to be someone gay in the family. Um, you know, Lamar, when you were younger, because I was a pretty like flamboyant kid. I was young and just, you know, uh, I also grew up with a sister, and so I was just kind of always around her and like did what she did. Um, my dad thought, you know, you were when you were younger, I thought it was a phase when people were telling me, you know, he's gonna be gay. Um, and so that was a little bit hard for him to understand. And then um, that was when I first moved to New York. When I first moved to New York, I was also over the weekends staying with one of my really good friends who lives in Manhattan and just crashing on our couch because it was Manhattan. My dad lives in Staten Island. So instead of going to Manhattan and back to Staten Island, I would hang out with her. And my dad shows love in very interesting ways. I don't know if he thought that I was out at gay bars and gay clubs, but um, this was also around the same time that there were a few hate crimes happening in New York. And so my dad calls me one day and goes, you know, I'm not sure what you're doing over the weekends when you're in Manhattan, but if anybody fucks with you, you know what I'm saying? You can give me a call. I got a gun in my trunk. <laughs> dad, thank you. Like, thank you, dad. I, I appreciate that. I see where this is coming from. You clearly love me and want to make sure I'm good, but no need to try to kill somebody for me. And so at the very beginning, my dad would show his love in in kind of uh, shrouded or like clouded ways, but I got what he meant. Um, and then over time, you know, he, he was a little bit hesitant to meet guys that I was, you know, dating or, or seriously with. Um, but I really want to say uh, shows like Empire really really helped because my dad's a big empire fan and like fell in love i don't know what jesse smollett's character's name is do you ever watch the show yeah i don't watch empire but my dad would call me and say hey do you watch empire and i'll be why dad is it because there's a handsome gay guy in the show and he yes that's that's exactly why i actually <laughs> watch the show so like my dad does like really really cute things that he won't outwardly say 
Um, now that it has been eight years, I think he's he's much more understanding of it. Uh, we don't talk about it all the time, but like when I talk, when I reference my boyfriend, he knows who I'm talking about. He hasn't met my boyfriend, but he would have no problem meeting him. Um, so yeah, so it started off with me coming out to my parents, coming out to my fraternity brothers, and them never treating me differently. If anything, making our relationship uh, even stronger. Uh, my line, <clears throat> my line brother is Jamaican, like from Jamaica, um, and it's been amazing to see his personal growth, his excitement uh, within, like excitement to see me, just to like have that different energy, because we're awesome. We also make great wing guys. So <laughs> my fraternity brothers, like all of their girlfriends or fiancés are madly in love with me because like, you know, I'm cute, I'm gay. Like it just, it, yeah. So that's that's been like the beginning of my experience and it sort of set the foundation for me for the past eight years of just being surrounded by some really loving people who accept me wholly, um, people who are not afraid to ask me questions if there's something that they just want to know about. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's been quite the journey the past eight years. Mm. Uh, and especially with being a teacher now, it's, you know, well, not now, now that I've been a teacher for the past few years, but now being an out teacher, it's added another fantastic layer where I'm able to um, just be out with the kids to have them see, oh, right, this teacher that has shown me the utmost respect this entire school year, if not my favorite teacher, because I'm a lot of their favorite teachers. <laughs> um, but like, oh, he's gay. Cool. Like, this is what a, a gay person can be because, you know, we're not all the same. But unfortunately, they only think about what they see on TV instead of the people that's right there in front of them. So... Yeah. Before you came out to your mom, mm -hmm. you had already kind of had a negative outlook on what this would mm -hmm. be. And what, where did that come from? Or what made you feel that saying you're gay would just ruin a lot of things? It would be negative. Well, it was never from my mom which, you know, some people grow up in very homophobic households where they hear their parents say something. It was, I, from, for as long as I can rem remember, um, my mom had a few lesbian friends when I was younger, but I, I still didn't really get it. Um, so it wasn't at home, it was from church. Um, I remember going to my great-grandmother's funeral and seeing the reverend or hearing the reverend at the funeral, go on a tangent about gays going to hell. Um, so I remember that. I remember going to, you know, Saturdays, or excuse me, Sunday school and and just like picking that up. And I now as an adult, I understand that that's not a religion problem. That is the person who interprets the Bible problem. Um but I definitely felt so much shame from, I mean, even jokes to what I would hear classmates say, because I was always an effeminate kid. And so I always got teased and got called a faggot. Like that was very, my sister who teased me, called me a faggot. My niece, 
who was my sister's age, would tease me and call me a faggot since I was maybe five, six years old. And so that's just something that uh, people were saying to me that I didn't really understand. Like, why are they calling me? They're like, what is this issue? Um, I keep thinking about the scene from Moonlight uh, at the very I beginning. Haven't you haven't seen Moonlight? Uh, Empire, Moonlight. All, I, have, I know. Ugh. But um, but just one of this one of the scenes, one of the earlier scenes is he looks up at this guy who's a father figure, and he just goes like, "What's a faggot?" Because people are calling me this. Am I a faggot? Um, and the boy's still so young. He looks like maybe seven or eight, and that's like very much was my experience. Um, and everyone had called me this name that seemingly had a very negative connotation to it. So that's how I internalized that this is wrong, that I can't do this. I can't be this. Uh, you know, it's an abomination. Uh, the reverend at my great grandmother's funeral, the funeral <laughs> said that, you know, these people are going to hell. Um, so this must be wrong. This must not be okay. Oh, all you know, it, it was just a lot of that. Um, that really stuck with me um, and and made me in some ways develop a, a hate for who I really was, or at least it would not allow me to embrace who I, who I was wholly. Um, yeah. Which, which really is not good because it, it turned into really bad, really low self-esteem. Um, which is something that I've had to work on for the past eight years. Uh, even though now I'm 30 years old, it's like, damn, you know, some some straight people never, like, they, they start their lives being able to build themselves up and feeling good about themselves without being put down by, by their classmates, by their siblings, um, by their family members. And so, yeah, that just took a lot of time and still takes time to just unravel and and really help me to focus on like who I am inside is the most important um yeah how do you now feel about religion mm -hmm. um and sexuality your sexuality in particular and do you wish to communicate to other people because there are people who are still very hung up on mm -hmm. um, certain texts, certain uh, beliefs about gay people going to hell. There are people that still believe that mm -hmm. um, and say that and, mm -hmm. you know, things of that nature. Do you ever wish to say something to them? And then again, where are you with your religion if you mm -hmm. have one and uh, yep. your sexuality? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would tell them to tell straight people to stop making us. <laughs> oh snap <laughs> like where where do we come from like it's straight people that's making us you know what i'm saying like no one wants to choose to be this persecuted sexuality um that has been persecuted for hundreds of years um you know first off no one actively chooses to live that way um and so i think when i was first like just developing my beliefs about everything in terms of where sexuality and religion meets that I was really angry and upset at, 
at the church for for making me feel this way for and not just me but for other people and then i thought about it there are so many amazing churches and and amazing um places of worship that really love all people um and so what I originally had against the religion, I had to understand that it wasn't the religion, it was the people who was interpreting the religious text. Um, I've seen religion do amazing things for people and really help people to find um, you know, their moral compass. I've seen religion help um people to strengthen relationships. I've, I've seen all of the amazing things that religion does. And I'm not just, at this point, I'm not just talking specifically Christianity. Um, but the religious texts and referring to the Bible specifically, it says a lot. There's a lot of things that are said in the Bible, you know, especially between Old Testament and New Testament. And and this focus on on sexuality is just very you know nitpicking at the sexuality um when god also says you may not like you can't judge um and so i think what originally started with a beef with the christian church has just now changed into you know unfortunately some people interpret the text the wrong way and become very exclusionary which is so sad um and so hurtful. Last year, last year, I went to a funeral. Uh, one of my really good friends, his partner, committed suicide. Um, and at the funeral, again, it was like a flashback to my great grandmother, um, where me, my really good friend, who was with this man for a long time, this was his first love, dead in a casket in front of everyone. And to see this preacher on a pulpit talking about why men are sagging their pants is because in jail it means that they wanted up their butts and you gotta pull your pants up in order to, you know, make it to heaven. It was one of the most infuriating. I was driven to tears, not from sadness, but of pure, sheer anger that this man in front of everyone, dead in a casket, at his funeral, this reverend went on that tangent. And that's when it just clicked. I was like, this isn't religious. Like, this is a very, like, this is a person who's making this conscious decision. I don't think God would want that. Not my God. Not the God I believe in. The God I believe in isn't this. Um... And now at 30 years old, I get it. Whereas for younger people, some students that I talk to, they have a really hard time um, being with their families, going to church, hearing things at church, but knowing that their best friend is gay, knowing that their best friend has a good heart and feeling torn. Um, yeah, it's... It's it's a lot. What is black magic? Ooh, what is black magic? Black magic is um, that unsaid connection, that like that liveliness, that mirth, that um, 
you know when you're in a room of all black people and you just kind of like feel this this love um that is black magic to me it is limitless that we like our potential um especially because for so long we were told that we can't do x y z that we're incapable that we don't have the brains to do it that we don't have the capital to do it um and black magic is everything that's anti that um it is it is the black magic is when um before i let go when uh frankie beverly and maze comes on when everyone just puts down what they have in their hand to go dance like that is black magic it is um sometimes waking up sunday mornings and going to church and being in a Baptist church and oh I love churchy black folk like real churchy not necessarily like religious but like churchy black folk like you and you know who I'm like Baptist churchy black folk like that is black magic to me like there's so much within our culture that is like celebratory that is rejoicing uh in the in in spite of what's going against us um, it is the power that we have created for ourselves in midst of the world being against us. What are your hopes for the Black community globally, just as a whole, the all of us? So I love social media. I do. Um, and on quote unquote Black Twitter, like just to see black people like really support each other, seeing black women like big up each other and, and just love on each other to see black men acknowledge other black men. And in terms of um, loving their boys, like, yo, you're my brother. Like, that's what I want to see. I want to see us more um, just continue to uplift each other because for a long time, the crabs in the barrel mentality was, you know, something big. I don't think that I've ever experienced that, but um, that was a mentality where it was like, no, there has to be one black person at the top. Um, I want to see black people just continue to love upon other black people, love black children, love black youth, um, let them know their potential. Um, yeah, and and also like get rid of the racial barriers. Oh, black people don't do that sport, or like we don't usually go do those things. No, we could really do everything. You know what? Black people would be great at lacrosse, but we don't have the resources. You know what I'm saying? There's not like a lacrosse field somewhere, and it's like, yo, black men, like go, like we could do that. You know, we could we can do anything. Um, and so I just want to see more black people continue because we're doing it. Not saying that we're not doing because it it's getting there like for real. Um, and especially in this wave of Black Lives Matter, I mean, like pro blackness has been here for a very, very long time. But in this new wave of uh, blackness, uh, which has its pros and cons, um, I, I just want to see people continue to celebrate their blackness and to never be ashamed of it, never be ashamed of being dark skinned. Like I, I want to see more and more of that. I want us to understand that we are very complex people. They're, they're gay blacks. They're, you know, uh, 
people are asexual that are black. Um, we are not one one type, but like there's just so much in us. We have so much power. Um, and I just want to see us continue to to maximize on that. Um, strengthening our own community. I mean, like we're we are headed in the right direction. I have the utmost faith. And so I would be so excited to see what the generations after us, like how that changes um, with them because of what we're kind of going through now. We are incredible. And I really wish that I had the words to, um, to show how proud I am to be black when I was younger because I had gone to predominantly white schools where I had maybe, I felt shame for being black, more specifically being poor, um, but that my classmates had resources I didn't have. And I wish that I had like the words to be like, no, like we're actually like great and really dope and, and smart and, and have thrived in the midst of everything that we are descendants of warriors like we really are uh to be a descendant of a transatlantic like slave when i sometimes i this is weird when i sometimes like stop and think about it like which is why you really need to read homegoing <laughs> which is why you really need to read if you if you were proud of your blackness before, yeah. after reading Homegoing, I like poked my chest out a little bit more. It's just yeah. like, damn, the people that came before me would be so proud to yeah. see where I am now. Yeah. Um, and so I want that pride to just continue into future generations to be proud of their blackness because I love my blackness <laughs> and yours. Yeah. And that's a wrap. And then, yeah, right. It was like the perfect <laughs> ending. <laughs> I'm going to end this podcast answering the two questions that I asked every single participant. One, what do you wish for the Black community? And two, what does Black magic mean? What I wish for the Black community is for all of us to just join together. There are so many more of us than there are not. And in our differences, there is still unity. In our differences, we can learn and love each other. In our differences, we can find so many strengths. It's beautiful to be different. And it's also beautiful to recognize all the ways in which we are the same. And when the Black community thrives, oh my God, it can, I'm, I promise you I'm not trying to be dramatic, but every time I think about what it would look like if all Black people came together with love, without that thing in our ear telling us one thinks they're better or whatever the case is. If we let our guard down and we really see each other as brothers and sisters, as many of us are doing right now today, I just feel like not only will the Black community benefit, but the whole world benefits. Um, and I, I wish that for us. I wish that all of the languages we speak all of our different skin tones, all of our different homelands just come together. And under this umbrella of Black, we just love and embrace and support and really look out for one another like no man's business. We win when we do that. And Black magic, 
Hmm. Black magic. I have not thought of this answer as many times as I have asked it, even up till now. What is black magic? I would chalk that up to resilience, simply. At this time, to be Black, especially for those who are immediate descendants of the slave trade. I'm speaking specifically to Black people who have been brought here, raised here, and taken from their original place of origin. By all definitions, we just shouldn't be here. By all definitions, people of that particular history shouldn't even be here to have made it, to be doctors, to be lawyers and judges, to be teachers, to be well-spoken, to be sane at all. Oh, that is magic. And I wholeheartedly, with love for every culture, give so much respect to Black Americans who have that particular history and are still here and are doing it and are, you know, sharing love, spreading love, that is inspiration for me and hopefully inspiration for everybody else. There is no strength like that. There is no other group of people, no other subgroup of people to have done what you have done. And I, again, am so privileged to be included in such a group. Um, it means a lot and that, that is black magic. To all the melanated people out there, may you continue to thrive in spite of the many attempts to bring us down and to stop us. I'm wishing everyone a happy black history month. I hope you've learned. I hope you've grown and maybe continue this conversation from February and beyond.